IU Themester 2022. It's Identity and Identification, sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Kern Goss. Co-hosting this series with me is Amanda Tinkle and Kate O'Brien. Today's guest is Dr. Amrita Myers, a Ruthen Hall's Associate Professor in Gender Studies and History at IU Bloomington. Dr. Myers is an affiliate faculty member for the Department of African American and African Diaspora Studies and American Studies. Her research focuses on black women in American history, slavery, and gender in African diaspora in the 19th century America. She is a devoted social justice activist, being featured on PBS NewsHour and co-founded the community organization of B-Town Justice. For the semester this fall, Dr. Myers will be teaching her course, Winches, Witches, and Welfare Queens, Images of Black Women in U.S. History. Today, the semester will sit down with Dr. Myers to discuss the intersectional identity of black women, societal stereotypes, and the resilience of black women that persists throughout history. First of all, it's lovely to have you here. Um, you're teaching a course, Winches, Witches, and Welfare Queens within IU Themester for this coming fall. If you want to like talk a little bit about that before we hop on into it for any listeners. Sure. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. And I'm really looking forward to teaching my class uh, within the semester programming this fall. It's a class that I've been teaching for um, a number of years, actually. So the full title is Wenches, which is Welfare Queens, Stereotypes and Images of Black Women in U.S. History. And it's a course that I developed a number of years ago because I teach Black women's history more broadly um, here at Indiana University. One of the things that I became really concerned about and invested in through my, through my own research was how Black women have been sort of typecast throughout U.S. history um, in various ways, um, not just within the present moment by media, you know, various kinds of media, but also historically I was sort of thinking about, because my own work, particularly my own research and publications are on the era of slavery. And I was thinking about, well, these these images that are resonating in the media today didn't just sort of pop up out of nowhere, right? They have a long history. You know, ideas about, right, the mammy, about the hypersexualization of Black women, um, ideas like the Jezebel, but even things that are more, more presentist that we think about in terms of the video ho, which is a very particular image, right? Black women as the stripper, these sorts of things. I'm like, they, they actually are not very, they're actually not recent images. They actually have a, a really, really long history. But I was really troubled by the fact that there's these, this constant, just like Black men have images as the rapist or the thug, these have long histories as well. But there was just these, uh, on social media, you had these, acronyms that were popping up like thought and we know what that means i mean the hoe over there right these sorts of things and but people were just throwing these things out there was a lot of like laughter and like snide commentary around them but nobody was contextualizing them and as a historian i was really disturbed by that and so i put together this course because i thought it was really important that we take these images and that we look at them and say, well, who developed them? When and where did they develop them and for what purpose? But then also most more importantly, how did black women respond to these images, these attacks on their character? What was their response and what counter images and narratives did they put back against these images about themselves, you know, against their morality, their sexuality? 
because this has been happening right for centuries here in the United States. And obviously it isn't just in the United States. These sorts of things are happening globally, but because I'm a U.S. historian and because this is a class about the U.S., we, you know, we, we focus on what's happening here in our country. So it's not a course that is chronological. It's more, it's thematic. So we pick several concrete images and we look at them and sort of build the context around them and say, like, for example, Mammy. And we say, okay, here is where it began, how it developed, how it was constructed, and here's how it's still resonating throughout different time periods, even into the present moment. And so we look at things like Aunt Jemima for example. And so we read different kinds of things. We look at advertisements, we look at videos, we look at films. And so we look at different kinds of source materials. Um, We look at poetry, we look at uh, fiction, we look at music, and we look at all the different ways in which these images have been permeating society, not only across time, but in different media formats. And it's so subtle that that's what's so insidious about it is that people today are being sort of like bombarded with these images, but don't even realize it because it's become so insidious and so invisible. And so by the time we get to 18 or 20 or 25, we have been conditioned to sort of think about black women in certain ways without even realizing it. We assume that black women are meant to be servants, are, are available, right, sexually, or you know, it, that, they be, that they are morally degraded, et cetera, et cetera. And we don't, we don't even realize where these images have come from because they're staring at us from supermarket shelves or they're, or they're coming at us from the evening news or from Hollywood screens or even from toy, you know, from the toys that, you know, that we might have grown up with, right? Or from the books that we read. And so we assume that black women are available or meant to clean our homes or these sorts of things. And it's like, well, hang on, why do I think this way? And so this class helps to unpack a lot of those things and help us to understand the, the, the biases that we have that we maybe don't even realize we have. Also, what I think, like I said, is really important how black women have always, always pushed back against these constructed images of themselves and put forward their own constructed ideas and beliefs about Black women's morality, sexuality, respectability, et cetera. And even right into the present moment with body positive images like with music like WAP, for example, right? And, and other things of that nature. So that, that's how the course is constructed to really go back and forth between past and present and utilizing a wide range of materials so that we can talk really openly about where these ideas come from, why we might unknowingly even hold them and begin to really have an open conversation about images and stereotypes in the United States and about misogynoir. Lovely. I I took that course with you last year. It is fantastic. It was so important. And I really, I learned a lot. Kind of going off of that, can you speak a little bit about your research within history and gender studies outside of just that course, just for anyone listening? Absolutely. So um, my PhD is in U.S. history. Then I have specialization fields within that, uh, two specialization fields. One is in African-American history. The other one is in women and gender studies. It all kind of comes together uh, in the fact that my specialization is actually in uh, Black women in the antebellum South. And so I specialize in um, my books and articles and publications are all on African-American women in the era of slavery in the United States. 
So I have a joint appointment here at Indiana University. My, my home departments are history and gender studies. My first book looked at the lives of free Black women who lived in Charleston, South Carolina prior to the Civil War. And it really interrogates what does it mean to be free, but also be a Black woman living in the heart of the slave South. You know, what does freedom really look like when you're both Black and female, right, in the plantation South, especially in a city like Charleston, South Carolina, that's going to become the heart of the Confederacy when the Civil War starts in 1861. So that book runs from 1790 to 1860, and it really interrogates, you know, first of all, how do Black women even become free in a place like Charleston? And then why do they stay? Right. Um, what does life look like for Black women under those circumstances? What kind of jobs are they able to get? Are they able to acquire, acquire property? Are they? What kind of social lives are they able to have? Because, and what we discover, you know, what I discover after doing my research is that freedom is really limited in in that city. Right. It's never the kind of freedom that white folks are able to have in the 19th century. Certainly not the kind of freedom that white men are able to have. But Black women push as hard as they can, as far as they can, to try to construct free lives for themselves in a society that's really constrained and limiting because, you know, white Americans never envisioned that Black people would ever have freedom, right? Because in their concept, in white people's concept, free meant white and enslaved meant Black. And so the whole concept of free Black people was an oxymoron for them. And so when the, the fact was is that when Black people became free, it was just so shocking for them. And they consistently tried to create avenues back into slavery for Black people. Like as soon as Black people became free, they were like setting up laws and ways to sort of re-enslave them, to trap them back into slavery. And so Black women had a hard road. There were constantly obstacles trying to trip them back up into slavery, but they did the best they could with what they had to make free lives for themselves, to acquire property, you know, to be able to go to church and worship. It was, everything was always towards making lives better for their children, stronger, you know, stronger sort of free lives for their children and grandchildren. It's actually really, it's led to my second book, which is going to be published finally next year. It's called The Vice President's Black Wife, The Untold Life of Julia Chin. And I've been working on this book for 10 years. (laughs) And it really actually has a lot to do with another class that I teach here at uh, Indiana University called Sex Lives and Diaries. It's, um, it came out of my first book and it has a lot to, it has to do with interracial sex um, and interracial families. And it's all about the woman, uh, about a woman named Julia Chin, who was an enslaved woman in Kentucky. And for almost a quarter century, she was in a, a relationship with the ninth vice president of the United States. And his name was Richard Mentor Johnson. So he, you know, this kind of sounds like Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, which is what most people think of when they hear this story. But what's different about this relationship is that it wasn't, Johnson never had a white wife. He never married a white woman. And he openly lived with Julia and their two daughters. And so this is, this is coming out with, with next year. But this is my, my whole career has been really dedicated to, you know, unpacking issues of race, color, sex, you know, gender, power, freedom, citizenship, right? Putting Black women at the center of the story always. 
and seeing like, what does it mean to be a black woman in the slave South and trying to like acquire more power, more privilege, more freedom for yourself and your, and your family and your children. So those themes resonate out from the first book and translate into the second. So that's the kind of work that I do. I was wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about sort of intersectional identity, especially in relation to black women, talking off of what we've been speaking about from earlier. No, definitely. I mean, that's something that I talk about so much in my classes, all my classes and with my students, because Kimberly Crenshaw, of course, coined the term. And I think that, you know, it took a long time for people to sort of pick up on the on the term and really understand it. And I mean, for Black women scholars, Black women historians have, you know, have been talking about intersectionality for a long time. And the fact that for anyone who's listening who maybe doesn't quite understand what it means, it's the fact that there are, you know, certain individuals that their positionality in life means that they um, can experience intersecting modes of oppression, that if you are a woman and you also happen to be impoverished, that means that you can experience intersecting nodes of oppression. If you're, you know, you could be a white man, but you could also be, you know, you could also be gay. That's an intersecting node of oppression. So because you could be impoverished, right? So there's there's different ways that intersectionality works out. But, but Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a black woman said, look, when you are black and you are female, you are born with intersecting nodes of oppression in this country because you experience racism and sexism throughout the course of your life simultaneously every single day as a woman of color. If you're a white, you know, if you're a white woman, you're going to experience sexism. If you're a black man, you're going to experience racism. For black women, you can't wiggle your way out of misogynoir. And so that that's something that deeply shapes, right? And, and I mean, this is certainly when you're talking about indigenous women, when we're talking about Latinx women, when we're talking about right, women of color from of different groups, this is something that they're going to experience in different ways. Now it's gonna be modified by class, obviously. It's gonna be modified also or added to by sexuality. And we know that folks who are trans, right, who are wealthy, it's going to be modified by religion. It's going to, um, all kinds of things can intersect and either add to or modify intersectionality in, in different ways. So everyone's experiences are different. And I'm not interested in, in engaging in um, what we like to call oppression Olympics. I'm not suggesting that you know, because people like to talk about, oh, like you're just saying, you're saying that sorry, there's like this whole gradation of like who has it worse in society. And I'm like, no, what I'm saying is that there are, there are certain, there, there are people who experience different kinds of oppression than others. That my experience walking through life is different than your experience walking through life or your experience walking through life. And that what that means is that we have to be willing to sit and listen to, uh, to other people's experiences. You know, that Curran's experience walking through life in her body is not the same as my experience walking through life in my body. And I'm not saying that that means that it's not about victimology. It's about being willing to listen to each other's stories because intersectionality means that our experiences are different. Right? And that we have to honor those differences and be willing to listen to them and be open to the fact that our experiences are going to mean oppression affects us differently, right? Simply because of structural issues. We have to acknowledge that the United States 
is structurally misogynistic, structurally racist. It, and if we don't, but if we don't start from that basic acknowledgement, right? If we don't agree that the U.S. Is, you know is white, that it is white supremacist foundationally from its founding, even prior to when it was colonial, that if we don't acknowledge that it was misogynistic, if we don't acknowledge that it was a settler colonial nation that attempted to like perpetuate genocide against the original indigenous inhabitants of this place that we sit on. If we don't acknowledge that and start from that place of agreement, then we actually aren't even going to be able to acknowledge intersectionality at all, right? So it has to start from that, you know? It's not about me saying, well, my life is worse than yours. It's saying my life is different from yours and I walk through it differently because of what, because of the body that I inhabit. Yes, I'm, I'm a cisgendered woman. That means that my experiences are going to be different from somebody who's transgender. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I have to be willing to listen to those experiences because I don't walk through this life as a transgendered person. That is intersectionality can be so hard for people to understand sometimes because it's like, oh, well, like my life has been hard too. And it's not about it being just like you were saying, it's not about oppression Olympics. It's about people having different experiences and listening. Kind of going off of the last question a little bit towards the beginning, you were talking about intersectional identity within Black women. How would you say that gender and race for these women, how does that inform their own personal identity? I mean, I, I think that you've been, you know, we've, we've been hearing a lot over the last few years, right, about Black girl magic, right, and Black girl joy, Black boy joy, right? Because I think that we talk so much about racism and sexism and oppression, violence, and all of these things, right, which is the things that are sort of coming at us, coming at women of color, people of color, Black women from the outside. It can be really easy to sort of focus on the negatives and how those shape how women of color, people of color, Black women respond to the world. But I think it's also really important to understand that we grow up in families that also, and church communities, and surrounded by friends and people who pour into us, teach us, and give us a lot of love and affirmation and strength about who we are. And that's equally important to constructing our identities. The book that I'm writing that's coming out next year is going to be dedicated to my grandmothers, right? One passed away when I was 11, the other when I was 19. I didn't get to spend very much time with them. But as I got older and I learned more about who they were and their stories, I realized that as important as my grandfathers were to who I am, my grandmothers were equally important to the woman that I've become and how they poured into their children and to my aunties, right? And how my aunties have poured into me and how my mom has poured into me. This is, and this is what I see in the women I know who are my closest friends, that we have women in our lives who are our role models, our aunts, our cousins, our, our sisters, but also our fictive kin, right? The people in our lives, the women in our lives who aren't necessarily biologically or blood related to us, but who are our family, who are godmothers and our play aunts, who are our fictive kin, who have poured into us and shaped us and raised us 
to to say that just because the, there are all of these things out there who are saying one thing to you, that doesn't mean that you have to absorb that or believe that in any way, shape, or form. And that's that's I think very important to consider because it's that has been the case for centuries. That in terms of race and gender, when you see you know women throughout the ages like Sojourner Truth and Ida B. Wells and Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and others, the things that they went through and were able to stand up and you know speak about the truth of what it meant to be a black woman, to be a leader in their communities, to to serve their communities. It was because they said despite everything that this country says about us, we know who we are and we know what we have to offer our families and our communities and to this nation, despite the fact that this nation seems to not want us. Because we're, you know, there's a book title that I read many years ago and it's always stuck with me. We're rooted here and you can't pull us up. And so that, that sort of, that's always really stuck with me about sort of race and gender and how how women of color, indigenous women, black and brown women sort of respond to these things that I've just, I'm just thinking about the fact that I never thought that I would live long enough to see a woman like Katanji Brown Jackson ascend to the Supreme Court of this country or that I'm writing about the enslaved partner of the ninth vice president of the United States. And we now have a woman of black and South Asian ancestry who is the vice president of the United States. Do we have a long way to go? We absolutely do. But Black women have never allowed white people in this country to dictate how they see themselves. Something that you talked about, actually, and we talked about this at the beginning, and we actually talked about this a little bit in some of our previous questions, is obviously we have some of these harmful and very outdated stereotypes that still affect us in the modern era and are attached to Black women, including like the Jezebel, uh, Sapphire, and the Mammy, and, and more as well. Sort of based on what we were talking about with identity, and, and also maybe perhaps coming from what you've been talking about in your class, how do these stereotypes sort of inform the identity of Black women? You know, I was thinking about the fact that it took the uprisings of 2020 to get Aunt Jemima off the shelves, like, and the name changed. Even though Black people have been protesting and trying to get the name of that product changed for like a hundred years. And even though the name was changed, there are people who complained that the name was changed. And there was like social media pushback on the fact that the name was changed. So let's just kind of stop and think about that for a second. There are people who are angry that Aunt Jemima is no longer Aunt Jemima. Think about the fact that the movie The Help was one of the highest grossing films in the year in which it was released. And the largest demographic that went to see that movie were white women. And they were bawling all over themselves in the theater watching it. These images of Black women as maids, Black women as cooks, Black women as like the sultry sex symbol, right, of Jezebel. So like Mammy is wrapped up in that whole image of the cook and Aunt Jemima, Mm -hmm. right? So, So Black woman is the servant, 
black women as the sex symbol or the Jezebel, black women as the angry black woman or Sapphire. Mm-hmm. And, and Michelle Obama was accused of that, right? Of being the angry black woman, you know, the outspoken black woman, the bitter black woman. So any black woman today is, has to like, if she's outspoken, if she's assertive, if she's intelligent, she runs afoul of being accused of being angry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you're, if you're in politics, if you're in higher education, if you have half a brain, then if you say anything, you're immediately angry. I mean, I, I, okay. I mean, (laughs) certainly it's happened. You look at any, if you look at Stacey Abrams, if you look at, it happened during the Senate hearings with Ketanji Brown Jackson's with the confirmation hearings, right? So these, these stereotypes are very much alive and well. I mean, Fox News had a field day with Michelle Obama, like anytime she had to constantly be like smiling and smiling and and no matter how much she smiled or how polite she was, she was still accused of being Barack's bitter half. That was literally a phrase that Fox News used. That was a name that they called her was Barack's bitter half. I think that this is the point that no matter how much you try to be, to wear conservative clothing, to smile and be polite and modulate your tone. If we're outspoken, if we're educated, if we're intelligent, if we're insightful, we're angry. Mm-hmm. You know, if we, if we are body positive, we're Jezebels. It's, um, but there's, if we're sort of damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. And so I think many, more and more, many people are just coming to realize that why bother trying to like engage with those? What, what's the per, What's the point, right? I think it's, I mean, it's just simply better to sort of carve our own path. And you were sort of talking about that earlier with how Black women form identity in positive ways, kind of outside of these stereotypes and sort of going back to that and going off of that. How, what does the rebellion against these stereotypes look like for Black women and how, are despite everything that's sort of thrown at them from the media and from outgroup biases, how are they still able to form their own identity? Kind of how you were talking about earlier. I think a lot of it has come through um, creating separate organizations Mm -hmm. um, or being involved. I mean, I'm certainly allying with folks who are like-minded in integrated organizations as well. But a lot of it has come through um, organizations, some of which are very longstanding, right? Like the like the AKAs, for example, which our vice president belongs to, historically black sororities like the AKAs or the Deltas, which so safer spaces where you can truly be yourself and not have to constantly feel like you are being watched by white eyes all the time. Yeah. I absolutely agree on that. And I think it's a really important discussion to have, especially as, as our generation is, is coming through college, as some of us are even graduating college and, and entering, I guess, what you call, quote unquote, the adult world <laughs> and, and entering this, this whole new life that we are now finally facing. Now, I have to ask before we, before we let you go, first and foremost, thank you so much for having this conversation with us and we really appreciate it. Just wondering if there was anything really quick that you'd like to touch on before we let you go for now. There are so many things that we could talk about, but I I guess what I would end with saying is that, you know, I was just at a conference this weekend up at Purdue um, on the past, present and future of American democracy. 
and which was was it was really wonderful in many ways, but it was also a little concerning, right? Um, and I was on a panel that were, I was on a plenary session with some really wonderful scholars where we were talking about sort of the imminent, what will most likely be the imminent reversal of Roe, given what the given the leak the leaked decision that that came out last month from the Supreme Court. You know, I was talking about my concerns that um, about how this is going to affect impoverished women and women of color in particular, given that we know the statistics about the ties in this country between race and, and class. But I also you know, said that this isn't just something that goes back 40 or 50 or 60 years, that you know, this is really something that is, the state has long tried to regulate black women's bodies. It's long tried to regulate the bodies of women of color, you know, here in what is now the United States. It has long tried to, right, it is long, it has sterilized indigenous and black and brown women. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer is a woman who comes to mind right away who was illegally sterilized, right, without her consent when she thought she was having an appendectomy and then found out as an adult that she had been sterilized without her knowledge. So like there are many, many black, brown and indigenous women who have been sterilized without their consent. Black women's bodies were enslaved black women. Their bodies were used as test subjects and the site of experimentation to develop the field of gynecology so that, you know, white women could then safely have hysterectomies and other, you know, life-saving surgeries performed on them. Basic women's healthcare in the United States today owes, you know, the whole medic, that whole medical science field owes itself to the unregulated experimentation on the on, on the bodies of Black women, Indigenous women, Brown women. The whole sort of attempt by the government to once again dictate and regulate and control um, and say what does and does not happen to women's bodies in this country is not new. It's, it's, it's longstanding and it's old and it's terrifying to me because it has always, you know, meant uh, terrifying things for women of color in particular because those are the women, uh, you know, women who look like me who have been at the mercy of the state of scientists, of doctors and hospitals and researchers and the government who have said, we get to cut you open, we get to experiment on you, we get to take things out of you, we get to put needles into you. You don't have any control over what you get to do with your body. This, it's why today black and brown communities still distrust the medical establishment in this country. It's why so many black and brown folks still didn't want to get the COVID vaccine in this country mm. because they mistrust the medical establishment. It's why so many of our elders were hesitant to go and get the COVID vaccine. It's, I mean, we have, black women have the highest rates of breast cancer, ovarian cancer. We have the highest rates of maternal mortality and infant mortality in this country. We, we lack access to healthcare, but we also mistrust healthcare. And so with the looming decision on the docket in front of the Supreme Court on Roe, I am terrified as to what is going to happen in this country to any person with a uterus. But I'm particularly concerned as to what is going to happen to women of color, to black, brown and indigenous women, because we know 
that the history of this country is, has never been kind to women who look like me. Anytime the state gets involved, this will not be the first law to fall because if you think they're gonna stop with Roe, they are going to, they're gonna get involved with transgender issues, they're going to get involved with gay marriage, they're going to get involved with affirmative action, they're gonna get involved with anything that they feel they can get involved with. They're gonna get involved with Brown versus Board. They're gonna get involved with, you know, like I said, I mean, the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. That is what a very smart political leader once said many decades ago, because it's none of their damn business. And this is exactly where we're headed. And it is gonna fall, the ax will fall most mightily on the poor, the disenfranchised, and folks of color. And they are threatening legal action and arrest and incarceration on anyone who helps someone procure access to an abortion. And that means going back to laws like the Fugitive Slave Act, when people helped people escape on the Underground Railroad, going back to the 19th century. So that is what we're going, that is what is on the horizon if we do not come together and fight back. And that means we have to go back to grassroots activism. So that is where I would leave us today. And thank you for leaving us with that. That is truly important and a very, very heavy issue that is not going to go away anytime soon, unless truly, just like you said, activism. Today's episode is a part of IU Bloomington's 2022 semester, Identity and Identification. To learn more about this year's theme, today's guest, or Themester events, visit themester.indiana.edu. Themester, Identity and Identification is sponsored by Indiana University's College of Arts and Sciences and created in a part by producer Brooklyn Shively and Themester director Tracy B. Thank you for listening.